Aloha and welcome to Thumbing Through Yesterday, the podcast where we take our favorite books down off the shelf, blow the dust off of them, and remind ourselves why it is we love them so. I'm Tom Galley. Joining me today, we've got Tony Pasculi. Thanks for having me. And our book today is one of Tony's choices. This is uh, Titan. Titan, right? the first in the uh, Gaia, Gaia trilogy. I, I don't know how that's pronounced. There's no I in it, so I'm going with Gaia, but that's not a typical spelling, yeah? Uh, you know, I'm looking at it, and my copy of this says Gaia with an I, book one, even though in the text it's Gaia, G-A-E-A. Yeah, right. So I'm not sure what's going on there. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Anyway, that aside, uh, wow, what an amazing book. All right, so the, the, the standard <laughs> opening question, this is your favorite book. Why is this a favorite book? This is a favorite book because it just punches all my buttons. This is a this is not only a, a an amazing science fiction novel. Uh, I, people who really are into hard science fiction won't call it hard science fiction. For me, it's close enough to call it hard science fiction. It is also a first contact novel. It is also an alien megastructure novel. Uh, it is also an epic fantasy novel. Um, so it's, uh, it's got a lot going on. It's got, you know, a lot of characters from fantasy. It's got an epic quest going on. Uh, and that epic quest, rather than a search for some sort of sword or gem or treasure trove, is a search for God, which is incredible. Uh, yeah, and it pays off. There's, I don't know if I've ever read a book where all the little questions that come up along the way get paid off so brilliantly at the end. Uh, yeah, in a, in a massive info dump that some people would probably just go, that's a lot of exposition. But it's like, that's why I'm reading this book. Give me all the answers. And he does. Varley delivers. It is the opposite of Lost or any J.J. Abrams vehicle. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you say it like that, <laughs> it sounds like a pretty good book. It's a pretty good book. Well... I enjoyed it. it was, like I said in the last episode, um, I read this series once, and my my general impression was that the the first book was the highlight of the series, and I haven't ever returned to it since then. Interesting. Um, so I'm looking forward to getting all the way through. One of the things that jumped out at me early in the book, and it never went away, is this guy is obsessed with sex. Yeah. We, we spend the first three or four chapters of the book. We're on the deep spaceship on its way to Saturn. And what do we spend our time talking about? Running the ship? No. Sex Scientific the instruments? Crew. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, a, a litany of who is sleeping with who, who has been sleeping with who, who wants to be sleeping with who, and who isn't sleeping with anybody, you know? Yeah. Um, and then it's punctuated for a very little bit of sci-fi when we encounter the structure and then the ship gets destroyed and then we're right back to sex again. Yep. <laughs> um, and it doesn't go away. Uh, it well, gets worse when the alien shows up. I think there's a reason for that. Uh, this is my theory. Uh, I'm going to just double check the publication date here. I think it's 1977. I think it came out in 1977. Uh, maybe a little bit later. So somewhere around there. So it's the tail end of the 70s. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, people were not having open conversations about sex in the 70s. There was the sexual revolution in the 60s, and it was, you know, kind of, it was panned. It was like, this is, this is freaky subculture shit. Uh, beep. And... <laughs> But science fiction authors were the ones that were talking about sex and exploring same-sex relationships in fiction where other people were just, like, not able to do that. Or 
interspecies relationships, sexual relationships, mm -hmm. or, you know, all sorts of variations, as we know from like Heinlein's novels. Uh, he gets into uh, group sex and line marriages and all that stuff. No one else was talking about this stuff in mainstream literature. Uh, and it all fell to the science fiction writers. So I think, you know, a couple of them, Varley and Heinlein in particular, <laughs> took up that mantle and said, let's get into it. Yeah. So, yeah. I can see some justification for it, but it doesn't change the fact that there's there's a... Were you to take the sex out of this book, I bet it would be 10% lighter? Uh, yeah. If you were to take the sex out of this book, I would have a much better chance of being made into a movie. Yeah. Yeah, which they could totally do. <laughs> Although one of the things that... Um, I'm, I'm skipping ahead in my thought process a little bit, but one of the things that the, the central, you know, the, the focus on sex did do early on is it really made me question even though I already knew the answer, um, how anything inside the structure could have evolved, right? When we meet the Titanides and their reproductive cycle involves a two-stage impregnation with two different sets of genitalia and manually moving a semi-fertilized egg from one set to the other, it's like, this cannot possibly have happened <laughs> evolutionarily. It just can't have. Yeah. Um, which... Spoiler. Is, is surprisingly foreshadowed, or not surprising. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he set this up I would like to think, you know, to yeah. foreshadow that, that truth. Yeah. I, so you said that Titan is your favorite book of the trilogy, and we can't get too much into this because we're going to deal with the rest of the trilogy over the next two episodes. Uh, but for me, I think Wizard is the best book in the trilogy. Um, and, and one of the things I love about it is he gets into the specifics of the reproduction of the Titanides in Wizard, which becomes a three-step process actually, in that book, uh, because uh, Rocky Jones, uh, Shiraco, who's the main character of this book and the whole trilogy, mm -hmm. um, gets turned into a necessary step in the reproduction of the Titanides. I don't remember anything about that. Well, that, you'll have that coming <laughs> I got up. that to look forward to. Yeah. But, but then Varley goes on this whole tangent of explaining every possible permutation of, because there are, every Titanite has... Uh, um, three distinct pieces of genitalia. I don't know what the collective noun is for that. Uh, and they can come together as ones or twos or multiple, you know, three titanites can, uh, can cooperate. So there's like all these different configurations that can generate a fertilized egg. Uh, and that is, and he goes and he lists them all <laughs> and he gives them names. And it's just like, that's the kind of obsessive attention to detail that I'm looking for in my science fiction. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Anyway, but that has very little bearing on this book, other than, yep. as you note, it's like these creatures are clearly artificial. Yeah. Hmm. And then, yeah. you know, and that pays off. Yes. Um, you know, and, and it happens, you know, time and time again. And, you know, I, I found it when we get to the end, you know, when, when um, Rocky has, has reached a destination and is talking to yeah. Gaia, Gaia. Um, yeah. And guy is explaining where her ideas come from. It's like yeah. this. What she's saying <laughs> is literally would have been response to the questions that were going through my head at the time. Yes. You know why is this all so human centric? Yeah. Why are these images images that are you know from our theology? Why you know what's why the deal is there with these a things? sandworm in the desert that's suspiciously similar to the one from Dune? Yep. Which yeah. she later admits to <laughs> ripping off. She's, yeah, I took that from a movie. I watch yeah. a lot of films. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's what I mean. It's like all the questions you have as you're reading the book get answered in a very satisfying way. And, they do. And not in, a, not in a trite way. It's like, oh, there's some depth here. Uh, and uh, I don't want to spoil anything for the upcoming books, which I haven't reread yet, but she's not entirely honest in her answers. Yeah. yeah. So. And again, just talking about the, the depth of this thing, it's something that doesn't, to my recollection, really get explored. Um, she's not the only Titan out there, right? There, there are, you know, thousands upon thousands of them. Yeah. Um, what we perceive as the moons around Uranus, 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 um, are in fact a swarm of Titans. And she's talking to Titans in other parts of the galaxy and presumably other yes. galaxies. So they have FTL communication, um, even though they themselves are planet bound. Um, At what, so that's a, that's a wonderful example of what I think is Tolkien calls the, the lighthouse theory of, of speculative fiction, where it's like, you know, if you have a well-defined area that you're going to explore in your fiction, you have to, at the very edge of the continent and in the border of your reality, you put a lighthouse that looks into the distance. And you're not going to go there, but you're telling the reader there's more out there. Mm -hmm. And Farley does that so well here. We spend 95% of the book inside this titan known as Gaia, which is, a, uh, which is an organic uh, megastructure, sort of like a... Um, like a space satellite. It's a, it's a big hollow ring. Uh, it's kind of like ring world if for those who've read that. Um, but it's a Taurus rather than a ring. Uh, and it's a, it's a living sentient creature as well. Um, and we know that it's engineered. We know that the first ones were constructed, but the constructors, the creators are gone. So Um, that's another great science fiction trope. Yeah. yeah. What happened to the builders? You know, and, (laughs) You know, one of the fun things about this, right? So the the average lifespan of a Titan is three million years. You yes. Know, Gaia is is over three million. Yes. Um, you know, and she's starting to come apart, and she knows mm-hmm. she's starting to come apart, right? Yeah. Which which introduces, you know, and, and again early on, right? When the when the spaceship is approaching, and then it gets attacked and crushed and destroyed by the by the docking mechanism you know i'm like this is just weird why in the world what what motivation and then we get a motivation we get something that actually makes sense and it's in part related to her 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 age and beginning decrepitude the world building in this is is just incredible uh so if you if you like you know stories of great world building this this has it and then, you know, beyond that, just the, the sense of, of scope and scale. I mean, it evokes for me, it evokes Ringworld, obviously, uh, but also Rendezvous with Rama, where there's this weird artifact shows yeah, up and you just and like actually, explore it. I conflated yeah. some things with when I was looking forward to reading this book. In my mind, I realized I have conflated some things mm. between the two series. That makes a lot of um, sense. Because I had, I was convinced that she was a, an extrasolar system object that had just arrived, but nope. Yeah, nope. nope. She she's was, a local. Yeah, she's a local. <laughs> Another nice detail of the reproductive process we were alluding to, uh, this mission that Rocky is on, the, the ringmaster, they send them out to check out something weird that's going on with one of the moons of Titan or Uranus. Saturn. I forget. It's Saturn? It's yeah. Iapetus. Yeah. Uh, and it had a weird uh, shift in its albedo. It was, it, was, it was one albedo, and then suddenly half of it became very, very light for a period of about 70 years, and they went to check that out, and then it changed. And it turns out that's a baby Titan, 
which basically spread over half of the surface of that moon uh, and is sucking the resources out of it to create all the mass we'll ever have as an adult uh, and will destroy that thing in the process. And this is where, you know, the rings of, again, one of the outer planets come from, from these destroyed satellites yeah. from her, from Gaia's well, maybe that children. was where the rings of Uranus, Uranus. I don't know why I can't get that name <laughs> out of my mouth today of Uranus came from. Yeah. Maybe I'm remembering that slightly wrong. But yeah, there were definitely Titans also orbiting it, though. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I don't remember them coming back in the rest of the trilogy. Uh, my recollection, again, I haven't read this thing in, in yeah. decades, but yeah. my recollection is that uh, we spend the rest of the, the trilogy inside Gaia. Yeah. Um, I don't even know if we have any other contact with, with humans other than the ones that are already there. Oh, uh, well, again, we're getting into the next books, but... Uh, uh, I guess we'll of, find out soon enough. Yeah, yeah. other humans come. Right. Other humans arrive. So we have other humans at the end of this one, right? Yes. The, the um, recovery slash military might yeah. mission, which something really did bother me about that um, because they, they make something of a deal about... I mean, they're, they're able to send Ringmaster out there, but it's really stretching the limits of human technology to send the yeah. ship with the, the half dozen people on it that distance. And yet when the next mission shows up, it's a military behemoth with hundreds of people and nuclear weapons. And, you know, they, they even make some offhand comment about, well, they've really advanced to, to send this, yeah. this new ship out. It's been what, a couple of years I mean, it's, it's probably been many years. If you're traveling at sublight speeds, and we know it takes a minimum of two years to get to Mars, so to get out past Saturn is going to be another... Uh, he played fast and loose with that. They weren't on the ship that long. Hmm. But even even if even if that were the case, yeah. I mean, it doesn't time out, right? Either they spent years and years unconscious um, as Gaia was trying to retrieve them uh, after they had been snatched from Ringmaster... Well, yeah, that's, that's the only possible explanation for enough time to have lapsed for Earth to have advanced their technology, built a military battleship, and gotten it out there. I want to say that we actually get a timeline on how long they're trapped under the surface in Oceanus. Oceanus. Uh, and I think it's on the order of months. I think it's yeah, like that's, one or th one my three recollection months. recollection is, is that the entire time they're in Gaia before the ship shows up yeah. is something on the order of a year. Yeah. Um, so, but that timeline doesn't bother me because that's another, that's another science fiction trope of the technology advances so fast that, you know, I don't know if there's an actual story like this, but this has been alluded to in many stories where someone takes off for the nearest uh, star system at sublight speeds. And when they land there, they find other humans there. Right. Yeah. Right. Because the technology has advanced while they were. Yeah. But that's, that's yeah. generations, you know, we're talking about months here. I mean, <laughs> how long did it take to build Ringmaster? I think it's right. at least years and they're probably building the next generation while they, you know, right. which yeah. was probably not the mega leap. It, well, yeah. whatever. It's, it's, it's one of those little <laughs> things that annoys me. It's, I want there to be a military presence there. So there will be a military presence there. Yeah. And I'm not going to bother to really explain it. I'll nod at it and then move forward and hope he didn't notice. Yeah. I noticed. All right. Didn't bother me. Okay. Didn't bother me. That's fine. In fact, do you remember, uh, you're a gamer. Uh, do you remember Steve Jackson games? Oh, yeah. Okay. GEV, Ogre. Did you ever play one called Warp War? I do not remember Warp War. Warp War was a, another game in the same format. It was like a little thing that folds out to the board about that big. Uh, and it was a game of uh, space exploration and combat. And one of the 
premises of the game was that technology advanced so fast that one of the tensions you had when you're making your turn is should I move my ship here or should I wait a turn and it can move nearly twice as far? Yeah. Uh, because the technology advances that every turn the technology was advancing. Huh. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. So yeah, again, that's a that's a trope that I just totally buy into. But okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, what did you think of the aliens? Because well, there are many. There are many, and one of the things that I absolutely loved about this, mm-hmm. right? So the structure of Gaia. She's a she's a ring around a central core with uh, four. Spokes that hold it together? Six spokes. Six spokes. Six spokes. So there are, and because of the, you know, she's far out from the sun, and she's got reflectors beaming light in, but you've got six regions between the spokes that are permanent daylight, and you have six regions that are shadowed by the spokes that are permanent night. So you've got 12 different regions here. Yeah. Um, and we get to explore exactly one. Yep. And not in depth, even. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and in that, that limited little bit of space, you know, and we, we, we bridge into uh, one of the spokes, you know, when she's making her epic journey, but... You know, in that little bit of space, we see a nice range of aliens. Um, And aside from all being annoyingly familiar, (laughs) um, which has a reason, a legit reason that that becomes clear at the end of the book. um, Yeah, I like it. You know, and they they were all pretty well thought out. I love the Titanide's obsession, both with the fact that a two-legged thing could stand upright. Mm -hmm. um, You know, and there's a couple of moments like they reach out to steady somebody, afraid they're about to fall over. And the fact that Titanides don't sleep. So, you know, humans going to sleep really bothered them at first. Yes. I like their obsession with music and decoration. Uh, They are, so they're basically centaurs, these creatures. Um... But they are not, you know, the centaurs of Greek myth, which are, you know, sort of human colored on the top and horse colored on the bottom. They're all sort of striped and candy colored, like runaways from a carousel or a merry-go-round. Mm-hmm. And and even that's not, and they're all different too. There's no, it's like some are Appaloosas and some are Palominos. No, they're all just like orange and yellow stripes or green polka dots or just random ass uh, configurations of color and even that's not enough for them they will add ornamentation and decoration yeah. and extra color and weave ribbons into their hair and things behind their ears and just yeah just a riot of color these creatures yeah and they have an awareness of Gaia um, it's it's a fact of life for it's, this, this yes. is not a mythological belief they know that there is a God presence there yeah. and they know that this God presence has something of a sense of humor because they'll remark on some of the creations and go, yeah, guy had a bad day. Yeah, um, you know, yeah. this mudfish thing that ends up being much more formidable than it looked. Yeah. But, you know, it, it has a sucker mouth that goes down under the muddy floor of the swamp and one eyeball on top so it can see what it's doing while it's eating. You know, very they, evocative they of the uh, trash compactor monster from uh, Star Wars. Yeah could, yeah, could well be, you know. But they're like, yep, guy had a bad day. Um, I liked that because uh, the deity was so matter-of-fact and obviously there that there was not nearly the reverence for it that there was if it's like a sort of a distant, maybe existing creator of the universe. Yep. Uh, and uh, one, of the, one of the Titanites, Meister Singer, says to Titan, it's like, when you get to Gaia, ask, ask why we have to have this war and my, uh, and my, I forget, child or partner died. And, and if Gaia doesn't have a good answer for you, tell Gaia to, you know, Go screw herself or whatever. Yeah, and slap yeah. her. Yeah, slap her. That was yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Slap her for me. <laughs> it was lovely. Yeah. <laughs> there was there was a lot that was just fun about that. Gaia 
complaining about designing angels. Yes. Um, yeah. how, how she had to completely <laughs> get away, you know, because the, the wings were mounted on the hips to make them aerodynamically balanced and, you know, all the other yeah. things. There's just so much about that idea I love. The fact that you have this, this entity who can, you know, she's creating creatures within her body and she can genetically manipulate them. Um, she says, it's as easy for me as making a clay model is for you. Yeah. Uh, which obviously there are better and worse people at making clay models. But then she's, you know, I get a lot of my ideas from TV. I watch TV. Yeah. Right. So she's admitting she doesn't have the imagination. She knows she doesn't have the imagination, um, but she's trying to put these things together in emulation of our TV programs. And it's, and it's great because, you know, as much as she's, all powerful, she's still constrained by the laws of physics because she is not the actual creator of the universe. She doesn't have control over the fundamental rules. Uh, she has total control over the life that's within her. Uh, but she does have to, uh, as you say, she has to balance the weight distribution. She has to make the angels are basically like emaciated children. Yep. They're not very intelligent because they have, she has to shrink their brains down uh, so they don't weigh as much. Uh, and... Uh, and even and all of that, even though she's at what twenty five percent of Earth gravity, um, which Varley plays very loose with during the epic journey. He annoys me greatly on that. Yeah, he he does because it's twenty five percent Earth gravity at the rim. Yeah, and at the spokes, it should be getting close to zero. Darn close to zero. <laughs> and yet, you know, by the time they get to the top, they're still struggling with the yeah. the packs and the climb. Yeah. Um. You know, when they they should be struggling to stay in contact with the exactly. whatever was passing for ground at the moment. And when they're in the throne room, they should be just floating, right? Yeah. Yep. They're in the hub at that point. Yeah. Yeah, every little flex of the ankle or something should send them off the ground in a nice, graceful bounce. Yes. But no. Yeah. Well, we don't know how big the hub is. I guess he does give us some measurements, but because there, there, there's a gap in the hub because they presume that's where the engines would be if there mm -hmm. were engines. That's true. It, there's a, yeah, there is a space. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think he gives enough credit to the diminishing effects, effects of centrifugal forces. They're climbing the spokes. Yeah. Although he does deal with the fact of uh, rarefied air, like this, which is why the spokes exist, right. uh, and Gaia's lament exists. So naturally, because of the, the spinning, all the air would settle in the bottom, but there's this elaborate system of circulating the air back up to the top uh, and then moving it back down so that it gets, so there's breathable atmosphere all the way to the top. Yeah. yeah. Which is important for the angels because they live very high up on the spokes. It ended up being really useful when they uh, when they were done. They parachuted down, yeah. which is something I wish he had actually spent some time talking about. But. I know. That's the most epic jump in history. It's a 400-meter, no, 400-kilometer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's an epic parachute dive. And it's just kind of like, yeah, we did that. That's how we got down. We just jumped. God, how long did that take? <laughs> and at quarter gravity at most, I mean, much lower. I mean, it, it could have taken yeah. days for them to float down. How do you sleep in a parachute? Yeah. Well, I think they go into a little bit more detail on that in the next book. You will enjoy that. Okay. So, yeah, you have that to look forward to. <laughs> One of the things I caught at the beginning of this, uh, when it's in this classic science fiction mode and they're just in this spaceship uh, exploring, is they talk about their computer system and how they're having to relay uh, problems back to Earth because their onboard systems don't have enough uh, horsepower mm, to, to do yes. the calculation. It's like... Oh my goodness! How far has your computer technology advanced? None far. That was a, that was a failure to extrapolate there. Yeah, and there, 
there are reasons people would object to this being called hard sci-fi. <laughs> oh, right? sure. But I mean, that, that same thing, the, the fact that you're trying to do real-time computations without mm-hmm. config, you know, dealing with the speed of light limitation in the distance, it's the same thing, you know, trying to get the military ship out there. Yeah. Um, but you need these things to happen for the story. The hard sci-fi people would object to a Titanite in the first place. I think it's just too implausible. Um, you do have to swallow a pretty big pill yeah, for that. Or, one, the, or the Titans. Sorry, not the Titanites, the Titans. Yeah. But you know what? Screw those people. I don't care. I, for me, hard science fiction is when is when you extrapolate and then you explore the ramifications. I don't need it to be physically possible by by our current frame of knowledge. I need you to just, if you invent a sonic screwdriver or what have you, that you go through and explore all the or the transporter for, uh, you know, mm-hmm. for Star Trek. You can't just have that for convenience. <laughs> you've got to you got to run through all the ramifications of it, which they don't. So they and don't. Farley does a much better job of that, I think. Yeah. yeah. So. Or they, they'll do it once and then <laughs> conveniently forget about it. Yes. Yeah. You know, we was that Star Trek log ten. Suddenly they have got they've replaced people's consciousness in different bodies using yeah. the, you know, and then that's just going to go away. Yeah. It's like no, we could we could save our most valuable people by transferring them to new bodies. Nah. Yeah. Nah. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm scrolling through my notes here. Um, a little thing, but mm-hmm. I love to pick on little things. There's a moment when the, the humans are consolidating on uh, on Gaia, and uh, the blimp is coming back, and it's got Calvin and, oh, I can't remember the names, but two other people. He's picked up, was it Gene, perhaps? Oh, he picks up Gene and August? Yeah, August left ones. with him, but they're, so they're coming back yeah. um, because they were, were summoned. And this is just before they set out on the epic voyage. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, was it Bill? Maybe it was Bill. Yeah. Or maybe this is when they're trying to get Bill fixed. I don't, anyway. Anyway. <laughs> um, but the, uh, the angels, led mm-hmm. by April? April, yeah. Um, are camped out on top of the blimp so they can sneak up on the, on the Titanides. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the, the humans parachute out of the blimp. As that's apparently the way one gets out of the blimp, even though one gets into the blimp by climbing a rope. Um, neither here nor there. And a bunch of Titanides jump out, and then these angels pop off the top of the blimp and start attacking them on the way down. Yeah, nobody should have survived that. Nobody should have survived that. Everyone that was on a parachute should have died. And yet, yes. they didn't. Only a few yeah. of them did, and none of the humans. Yeah. Okay, maybe we can forgive the humans because they actually avoided attacking the humans in another moment because they weren't titanides. But still, every titanide in the air yes. should have been cut down. Yeah, no, not attacking the humans makes sense because they have a built-in biological drive. Angels have a built-in biological drive to try to kill titanides and vice versa. Yep. But yeah. if you're coming from above, all you see is a parachute, and you know that Titanides are coming out of the blimp, well, I think mm-hmm. a few humans should have gotten... Maybe. Yeah. I mean, that would have reduced your cast of characters. Yeah. Can't have that, but yeah. What did you What did you think of the cast of characters? I think this is where the first book kind of falls down for me. I love Rocky, I love Gabby, and I kind of hate everybody else. We don't get to see any of them really as humans ever mm-hmm. um again we we spend the first few chapters with them having sex in the in the ringmaster i decided at that point that rocky is actually a pretty poor captain um mm-hmm. not just because of the sex but wow is she just not captainy in any sense of the word and then she continues to demonstrate that she's <laughs> not at all captainy throughout the entire book um 
she's aware that she's not captainy, yep. and other people are aware that she's not captainy, and yet they keep making her captain. Yeah. Um, so be it. But you know when you watch really old sci-fi movies, and you know the there's the captain who absolutely knows everything, and then there's the teenage kid that somehow is on the <laughs> ship, and then there's the bumbling cook that's not really good for anything, but yeah. he drinks a lot. None of the characters are actually competent, unless they might be competent at their job, but they're not Competent at life? Yeah. 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 This is what it reminded me of. Those people should never have been selected to be together <laughs> on a spaceship exploring a new spot, you know? Those people could be passengers on a freight liner, but that's, yeah. Well, to be fair, they weren't expecting to be exploring a whole new world. They were supposed to do like a land on Yapitus and maybe take a soil sample. That's all they were going to do. Yeah, uh, they didn't really strike me as, as the sorts that could have pulled that off good enough for that, huh? Yeah. Okay. By the time we get to spend time with them, they have been abducted and, and reborn and through Gaia. Significantly and, and altered. Yeah. Changed, yeah. Which, oh, the pregnancy thing. Now that, and again, this is this is a little thing. And So they've, they've got three of the women together, and they realize that they all have missed their period. Yeah. And what do they do? Oh, my God, we're pregnant. Quick, give us an abortion. Mm-hmm. There's no thought that goes into this. There's no questioning other possible explanations. There's no, let's... Research. Let's take a breath. We know it's been altered in some way. Could we not have been altered to not have a period anymore? Right. Yes. I mean, there there isn't. There are three or four plausible explanations right up there with alien impregnation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to the point where they're trying to force the doctor to perform procedures on them using sticks because it's literally <laughs> the only tool they have. They don't yeah. even have fire. Yeah. Right. And the doctor Calvin, who I don't like at all, but this is one of the few moments in there that he is quite likable. He's like, no. Yeah. I will not do this. There's not that much time pressure. Yeah, well, let's wait a Get month. Get where you're going. Yeah. I'm going to go do some some limping about. Yeah. Um, summon me in a month, and we'll see what we can do. Hopefully, you'll have learned to make fire by yeah. then. Although, uh, I will say, and, you know, not being a woman, uh, that might I might have a different perspective on this, but but sympathetically to their position, I could see how if you thought you had been impregnated by an alien— that safety concerns might be very far down on your list. I can of, totally see that being, yeah. you know, if, if, you know, I woke up after having a face hugger face on, on you. Me, yeah, you're right? like, we can't remove it safely right now. It's wait a month, Tom. You're like, right. no, get it off no, right now. I don't I, care I, if I, I die. I can understand there being some level <laughs> freaked out. But, the, but that the only conclusion they are willing to entertain is alien impregnation when there's, in fact, they all skipped a period. Yeah, um, yeah that's fair. That's a good that's, objection. That's a yeah. good objection. Yeah. Um, now, of course, it turns out they were completely right. Yes. They had been impregnated. It was an alien impregnation. Um, this is Gaia trying to get the spark of war into her titanide race. Yes. Um, yeah, so uh, so she's created the titanides and the angels so she can practice war because she knows humans are warlike and eventually they're going to show up in her neighborhood. Yeah. And then she's she's fantastically bad at it. And, in fact, it's April who invents the tactic of riding on the yes. blimp. Uh, it's like something Gaia never would have thought of, and none of the angels ever would have thought of. And she's like, wow, an innovation already. Well, it's like in, inventing bow and arrow, right? Yes. Yeah. You know, she, you know, she says, I could give the Titanized bow and arrow. I've watched TV. I know yeah. how to make bow and arrow. I was hoping they would invent them on their own. Yeah. Um, whatever she can do, you know, her limitations are her limitations. Yeah. Um, and they're passed on, right? She doesn't have imagination, so her creations don't have imagination. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I can, you know, from an evil overlord goddess of my own 
body perspective. <laughs> I can totally see trying to pull a sneak impregnation of these humans that clearly have, you know, traits I can't duplicate. Yeah, I think he's also I think he's also just going for some straight up body horror there. I mean, that's just like such a you know, again, that's another science fiction trope, alien impregnation. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's horrific. It's horrific. And of all the horrible things to happen to them, a lot of horrible things happen to them uh, on this on this adventure. And it is, a, at times, it's a rollicking adventure. And and if you were going to make it into a movie, I think that's one of the things that would be cut out because that is not rollicking at all. <laughs> it's horrific. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. and, and the whole... I have had my mind invaded, and I am now chronically unstable because of it. Yeah. That's not going to translate to the big screen. Yeah. Um, but again, that's something that took characters that could have been lovely characters and just ruined them. Um, both April and August, we don't ever get to see them do anything but whine. Yeah. Um, and Gene gets treated pretty badly. He gets turned into, I mean, he was apparently always a creep. But he gets turned into a rapist. He gets turned into a rapist. Yeah, that's um, pretty... A psychotic rapist at yes, that. Yeah. Gave you a chance to have sex with me. Didn't take it. So we're, we're going to do this. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a pretty awful episode also. Yeah. Which, uh, which, you know, doesn't add anything to the book except for some tension at that point in the book. And, and he was yeah. acting so bizarrely to begin with. I'm not sure why Rocky brought him along on that trip. Yeah, well, they, they had the moment where Rocky did get to demonstrate her, you know, moral code by refusing to kill him when they had the chance, yeah. which just struck me as stupid. Yeah. Um, and another example <laughs> for being a poor captain. Yeah. Yep, okay. So there were six humans on Gaia. That's a shame, but he's yeah. got to go. Yeah. Oh, well, I think Farley does a lot better with the characters in the next book, which is one of the reasons I like Wizard better. But we'll, we'll see if you can we'll see, we'll we get see to how it. That goes. Yeah. Let me see if there's anything else I had in notes that are just can't bear to pass up. Uh, I, have a, I have a fun note here, because I think this is true of science fiction in general. Um, uh, they're talking about uh, the people they selected for the mission, and they say, but space was not the same. Generations of science fiction writers to the contrary. The people who explored it were highly intelligent, individualistic geniuses, the very best the Earth had to offer. There had to be flexibility, and the NASA legal code for deep space voyages acknowledged it. So it's basically saying these are a bunch of quirky weirdos because that's what it takes. Uh, those are the people who are going to be attracted to space exploration, and we have to deal with their peccadilloes, uh, which is sort of a justification for why they're all so weird to begin with. Yeah, um, at least he took a stab at acknowledging it. Yeah. Um, this, this is how we have this misfit, ragtag bunch of adventurers yeah. on Earth's bleeding edge starship, <laughs> spaceship, yeah. so far out in the, in the dark. Uh, oh, here's a, do you have a highlight? Oh, go ahead. Okay, here's, here's another one. Um, so, so I said it's a first encounter novel, uh, and we have, uh, we have these people exploring this, this ancient and bizarre world, uh, alien world, and they run across intelligent life, and they manage to speak to it. Uh, this is Rocky and the Titanides, and they're trying to explain that they come from uh, something like a satellite, <laughs> like a Titan, but it's farther away, and they're like, oh, you're from Earth. And it's just like, that sentence is just so shocking and yep. so wonderful. <laughs> we know all about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which, not my highlight, but this, this <laughs> brought up a question to me. So we, we know that Gaia is capable of sending radio traffic. Yes. Because you know, they ask her, why haven't you talked to Earth? She's like, 
I really didn't want you guys to know I was here, you know, until it was yeah. too late. But now she has interactions going on with Earthlings. She has FTL communication with all of her sisters. Now, she specifically says my sisters, so yeah. maybe all the Titans are female. Um, I don't know. But we know there are other Titans in the system, and presumably they all have radio contact. Is there now going to be a new age of interaction between humanity and Titans? Wouldn't that be fun to see explored? Because, well, I mean, we're, we're only meeting one Titan in this entire trilogy. Yeah, I don't think we meet other Titans later on, but there's definitely going to be a new age of interaction between be, right? in, in wizard yeah that's one of the themes of wizard oh is yeah. it okay yeah, yeah, i can look forward yeah. to that yeah all right so one of, one of my last highlights here um guy is talking about her age she says yeah i doubt i'll live another hundred thousand years um <laughs> you know to which rocky is completely unsympathetic and she laughs and says you're right i might outlive your civilization yet you know yeah. um but for something that's been around for three million years yeah a hundred thousand um, is, is a tiny fraction of that you're definitely in the dregs yeah, yeah for sure uh, and failing, as we say. Yeah, uh, and, and she's self-aware of, of the fact that she's failing, and, you know, and she accepts it in a way that, as a human, I don't. Um, you know, I'm 55, and mm -hmm. you know, I, I can see things happening. You know, I, I can see things that don't work as well as they did when I was 35 or 25, yeah. um, and I'm nowhere near as graceful about it as she is. Yeah, yeah. Well, the equivalent would be if you had less than three years to live. That's what she's looking at. Yeah. Yeah, if you do the, the ratios. Um, I have a couple other things highlighted here that are just sort of just lovely fitting in with the, the adventure trope. Because uh, this is a really great, I mean, in addition to being a science fiction novel and a fantasy novel, it's also a great adventure novel. That it is. They're climbing the spokes, uh, and, and Shiraka says to Gabby, get out those swords, will you? Um, they have swords from the Titanites. Titanites have swords to combat the angels, and they packed a couple along with them just in case. Uh, Gabby says, you expecting trouble? She says, nothing that a sword would cure. I just feel better with it in my hand. I'm supposed mm -hmm. to be a hero, right? Yeah, I just love that image of these two women climbing this stairway, literal stairway to heaven. And they're like, I just feel comfortable with a sword in my hand at this moment. <laughs> <laughs> what a great image. Uh, and then the other one was, they get, to the, they get to the hub, they're complaining to God about what a miserable time they've had, and it's God's fault uh, and God says, um, yeah, you know, they say they're miserable and it says everything about you says that you're not, you had a goal to achieve getting up here. Now it's over the best time of your life. Deny that if you can. Yeah. That, that reminded me of when James Earl Jones was talking to Conan, the barbarian saying, mm -hmm. you know, who has given you that strength? If not me. Yeah. Right. Yes, I killed your parents. Yes, I cut your mom's head off. Yes, I sold you into slavery and stole your sword. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's an element of that. And there's also a recognition, I think, on Rocky's part that she was never cut out to be a captain. She was cut out to be an adventurer. And she stumbled into it by luck. And she got to go on this amazing adventure. Yeah. And, and as the capstone to that adventure, Gayer gives her a job offer at the end of the book. Yeah, which like, is you know, going to be, continue to be an adventurer. Yes. Yeah. Right. So you, you've, you've helped me out in this one area or you've got to see this one area. We've yeah. got 11 distinct. I'm going to, I'm going to read this quote because I love this and it kind of sums up the whole book. So the job, she says, yeah, I have a job for you. 
this is this is everything I love in an epic uh, fantasy adventure. A chance at a long lifespan with the possibility that it might be quite short. I'm offering good friends and evil enemies, eternal day and endless night, rousing song and strong wine, hardships, victories, despair and glory. I'm offering you the chance at a life you won't find on earth, the end of life you knew you wouldn't find in space, but hope for anyway. How would you like to be a wizard? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Who wouldn't jump at that? I know, right? Yeah. This book, to, to start with a, you know, a pretty, well, aside from all the sex, a pretty stereotypical space exploration crashing into an alien megastructure, uh, first contact with alien life, uh, the epic climb to meet literal God, and then this job offer at the end with a promise of further adventures. Yeah, this is like my, this is like my perfect novel. This, it is such a fantastic setup for whatever it is to come next. (laughs) I mean, you know, and this was a page turner. Yeah. I'm not going to deny it. I really had a good time reading this book. Oh, I read Um, this in two days. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It it went way too fast. And I went back and reread chunks of it as well, just to reappreciate them. I don't consider him a good writer. Um, In terms of of structure, in terms of grammar, in terms of vocabulary, in terms Mm -hmm. of language, I don't consider him a good writer, but Damn, this is a really enjoyable book. He, I consider him a good writer, but I'm looking for different things from my writers than you are. He's a very much of a contrast with Michael Chabon, who we were talking about last time, mm-hmm. who was like, let me just dive down on this detail uh, and just really bring it to life and make it so rich and complex and real. And, and Varley, I think he does a lot of the hard work of world building, but he skates over some of the human emotion uh, and, and he cuts corners in places to tell a ripping yarn. Yeah, yeah. but he keeps that story moving. Yes, he does. I mean, yeah. you know, you're all about narrative. Yeah. The narrative doesn't take much the way it pauses <laughs> on this thing. You know, we're, yeah. we're moving, we're clipping along. He does a great job of that. And he does, you only appreciate it in retrospect. He actually does a really fantastic job of foreshadowing and of setting things up that aren't going to pay off until the very end of the novel. But wow, yeah. do they really pay off they really do. at the very end of the novel. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, what's remarkable to me is that with that conclusion that there's room for further adventure, you know, it's like, oh, you're a wizard, but now you're just going to go around and do wizardy things. And where's the conflict come from? Where's the drama? Where's the, yeah. oh, there's so much drama yet to come. <laughs> oh, God, the, the confrontation with the military mission. Oh, right? yeah. The, the, the fact that she was able to sit down and think, how is this going to play out? Okay, let me three days in advance start the preparations for something that I can't, I cannot accelerate it. I can't stop it. You know, Mm -hmm. in three days, there's going to be this earthquake type event. Um, I have to time my interactions with humanity and be accurate enough in my predictions of what they're going to do so that it strikes at a meaningful moment. Yeah. Um, I love that. It's very much in line with what stage magicians say about magic is a lot of magic just comes down to the fact that magicians are put, willing to put in more time and effort into creating an effect than normal people will give them credit for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and that's exactly what she does here. She, she does sort of stage magic with this effect. Uh, it's very real and very damaging and, and incontrovertible proof of her ability yep. <laughs> that she started three days ago and couldn't have stopped if she wanted to, you know, exactly. if it had gone different if the human had been like, you know what? We're good. You stay here and do you. She's like, you might want to hold on to something. That's a moment Heinlein would have made more of this. Heinlein loves taking down uppity bureaucrats. 
Uh, yes. And and Varley does it, and he does it as a grace note towards the end of the book, and, and Heinlein would have made a meal of that. Yeah. So it reminds me a lot of the end of Tunnel in the Sky. Um, I don't know if you've read that recently. No. Oh, okay. Well, where we're... People go off on a similar adventure and they come back and they just have to deal with bureaucracy as they're trying to be reintegrated. And, and the people are just going, no, I'm, I'm an adult now and I've had an adventure and you can't just like dictate terms to me anymore. Yeah. So Tunnel in the Sky, book that should be on our list at some point. Well, we have time. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right, that's, thoughts on Titan? That's what I've got on Titan. I'm very much looking forward to diving into the next two books. I made a point not to read them before I've, today. I've made a point not <laughs> to read them. It's, it's been something of a challenge trying to find yeah. something I could read in the meantime. Um, yeah. Wow, am I looking forward to the rest of it. And this, you know, and again, in my memory, however long ago I read these things, I was disappointed enough by the time I finished the third one that I, I didn't think I was going to enjoy this. I didn't think I wanted to go back to it. But wow, what a, what a fun book this is. I am really, really looking forward to Wizard. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And Wizard is a blast. Cool. And you may have the same problems with Demon that you had the first time around. We talked about it in a very early episode. We were talking about how spacesuit will travel, mm -hmm. and this came up. So yeah. yeah, we'll see. We'll see what my perspective shift might have been in 30 years. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll get to Wizard in two weeks. Yeah, yeah we will. See you there. See you there. See you there.